Of course, quick review, you know, Jeremiah, what a miserable ministry that man must have had. Four decades preaching what we would call a fruitless ministry if you were considering success as in numbers. He never had great numbers, never achieved the goal that he thought he was going to have, wound up being accused of being a traitor by his own people. Of course, it's important to study, uh, to remember in Jeremiah, also Ezekiel, Daniel, all of these. These were three contemporaries with Jeremiah being the senior. Now, Jerusalem fell over a period of 19 years. They really lost political control in 606, and that is when Daniel was taken captive. Only about 2,500, 3,000 were taken back to Babylon at that point in time. Daniel was one as he was an exceptional uh, individual. Uh, He was a member of the uh, royal household. So they took leaders back to integrate them into their government in Babylon uh, to hopefully uh, result in cooperation among all of the ruled nations now. But there was a rebellion in paying tribute. And in 597, they had to be brought back under control with a second siege Again, there was a surrender without the city being destroyed. And at this point is when Ezekiel was taken back. And about 10,000 what you would call uh, uh, small business owners uh, and, you know, uh, uh, blacksmiths, skilled uh, technicians were taken back into Babylon at that point in time. And then finally, uh, some nine and a half years later, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed in a gruesome siege that is detailed to some degree in the book of Lamentations. So these three men were contemporaries. They were aware of each other. You're going to see tonight that these others actually read Jeremiah's letters. and No doubt there were responses sent as well. Uh, Jeremiah spent his entire ministry in Jerusalem. Daniel was in Babylon in the king's court. Ezekiel was in a refugee community about 50 miles south of Babylon. And again... This is the progression of Jeremiah's ministry beginning during the reign of a good king and extending through these vassal kings that were all evil, either evil men or weak men. Now, we are down in the final phase. We are within about the last five or six years before the last siege and the destruction of the city. That is where chapter 29 takes place. And once again, as we saw last week, Jeremiah is in the middle of controversy. You've got true men of God preaching one thing. You've got phony men of God preaching the opposite. And there obviously is a battle. There's a conflict there over who's telling the truth. Beginning in verse 1. Now, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem unto that remnant that had been taken captive into Babylon to the priests that had been taken captive, to the prophets who had been taken captive, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, when did this take place? Well, this was after the second siege, after Jeconiah the king and his mother and eunuchs and princes of Judah and Jerusalem and carpenters and blacksmiths were taken captive back to Jerusalem, or or from Jerusalem to Babylon. By the hand, so this letter was written from Jeremiah and carried by this uh, delegation that was sent by uh, Zedekiah. You see up on the screen, Zedekiah was this last vassal king. He is now in charge, but answering to Nebuchadnezzar. And as vassal king, he was sending a delegation with communication 
to Babylon. Didn't have email, didn't have a Zoom call, didn't have phone call. If you wanted to send communication, you needed to send it via a caravan, especially to be secure from robbers and thugs that might be along the way. Now, Jeremiah was a man of God that was hated by most of the city of Jerusalem. But King Zedekiah actually respected him. King Zedekiah actually thought well of him, but Zedekiah was a weak leader. His counsel was able to manipulate him and convince him to do things that he really didn't want to do in his heart. So Daniel is ultimately going to receive this very letter. Don't know that it was addressed to Daniel specifically, but it was addressed to all the Jews that were in captivity. But you're going to see in a moment how important this letter actually plays in uh, our Bible and in Bible prophecy as they understand it. So here's the letter. Thus saith Jehovah Sabbath, the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, being written unto all those Jews that have now been carried away captive into Babylon. And by the way, the Lord says, be part of verse 4, I'm the one that's behind all this. It's not that Nebuchadnezzar is such a big bad guy or the gods of Babylon are stronger than the gods of Israel. I am the one that's sending you into captivity because of your disobedience. And here's what I'm telling them to do. Settle in. You're going to be there for a while. Build houses. You're going to be living in them. Plant gardens. Eat the fruit thereof. Get married. Have sons and daughters. And uh, let your sons and daughters get married and have sons and daughters. That your number increase and not diminishes. And as you are now subjects of Babylon, seek the peace of the city. Don't intentionally break the laws unless the law violates God's law. For example, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego intentionally broke the law because that particular command was unconscionable. That was beyond the realm of civil government. And quite frankly, that was clearly in defiance of worshiping the one true God of Israel. And seek the peace of the city, so don't break the law. And, and, all, and Peter tells us we're supposed to pray for our leaders, and we do. But be good citizens is what Jeremiah is telling them to do. And pray unto the Lord for it, for the peace, uh, for in the peace of the city shall you have peace. Again, the point is, you're going to be there for a while. And here's the conflict, here's the rub. In the book of Judges, for example, there were many times where God brought judgment upon them. Uh, upon disobedient Jews, the Midianites, for example, the Philistines at the time. And in those cases, after a short period, God would raise up to power a judge, a George Washington, really, so to speak, that would gather the militia and they would throw off the oppressor and come to a period of repentance and get right with the Lord and receive God's blessings again. And then the next thing you know, they would be repeating the error. Now, there was a conflict between the two groups of preachers. You had Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel preaching, God's brought this on, submit to it. You needed to repent when you had the chance. You still need to repent. Then you had the false preachers that were preaching an attractive message. You don't need to repent of anything. You're still God's chosen people. You're Israel, aren't you? Hey, we've got the temple. Look, there's the temple right there in the city of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, I've heard from God myself. Not only is God fond of us, but any day now we're going to see King Jeconiah and all the Jews come back from Babylon, and they're going to be bringing all the temple treasures with them. We've got nothing to worry about. And they were basing it on this promise. 
Leviticus 26. Now, this is less than a year after the Jews had been rescued out of captivity and bondage. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was here where Moses received the law, and they received the construction plans for the tabernacle and all the, uh, the, uh, the holy treasures within it. And God made this promise, don't make idols or graven images. Neither shall you worship an image of stone nor bound down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. And by the way, that Sabbath, as we will see in our study of Jeremiah, is more than just the seven-day Sabbath. That's the sabbatical year where they were to let the land rest every seventh year. And God makes them this promise, conditional blessings. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you plenty of rain, the early and the latter rain, the, the fall and the spring rain. The land shall yield her increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing, your grain and barley harvest, your wheat harvest, shall carry over all the way over until the fall harvest, the vintage, the grapes. And the vintage shall reach unto sowing time when you start the process all over again. And there's going to be plenty to eat, and you are going to dwell in the land safely, and I will give peace in the land. And you shall lie down, you'll sleep well at night, none shall make you afraid. I will rid the evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And continued promises. But understand, this was conditional. You are my people, I am your God. You obey me and do it my way, and I will bless you. Well, the false prophets could go to the law and say, look here. God has promised us peace in the land, but they are twisting the Scripture. They're not preaching the whole counsel. In that same passage in Leviticus, you've got this. God goes on and says, but if you will not hearken unto me, then I'm going to turn my face against you, and we're going to be nose to nose, and I will bring a sword upon you. Notice who's doing it? God. Who did he say? Who was responsible for Nebuchadnezzar invading the land? God has taken credit for that all through Jeremiah, that thou shalt avenge the quarrel of my covenant. When you're gathered together within your cities, I will send the pestilence among you. You shall be delivered into the hand of enemy, and I will bring the land into desolation. I will empty the promised land, and your enemies will dwell therein, and they shall be astonished at all that's happened. And I will scatter you Jews among the Gentile nations, and I will draw out a sword after you, and your land shall be empty, and your cities waste." Then shall the land enjoy her Sabbath. Now, this is, what, 900 years before Jeremiah. And God's telling them exactly what the rules are and exactly what's going to happen if they disobey Him. And that's exactly what is happening. So, here's the conflict. You've got Jeremiah preaching truth and going to the Bible and showing them truth. And then you've got false preachers preaching lies, but trying to base their lies from the Bible. And how were they doing that? Well, they were using half-truths and misrepresenting the Scripture. I hope that you enjoyed Sunday's message. It was a kind of put everything in context where you understand the big picture of what His story is and how we fit in the plan. Well, it's easy to take one verse and take it out of context. And by the way, context is everything. If you were to watch MSNBC, God help us, and they said, oh, it's a terrible thing. A white man 
kicked in the front door of this black woman's house and ran in. And next thing I carried her out screaming. Well, you would say, well, that's terrible. But if you read the earlier paragraph that they didn't report, you would see that the building was on fire. That white man was a fireman who kicked in the front door, and the woman was screaming, and he carried her out to save her life. Well, wait a second. The same series of events happened. Door kicked in. One guy carries out a screaming lady. Well, context matters. Context makes a big difference. And remember, what did Satan use when he was tempting Jesus or trying to test Jesus? He was misquoting Scripture. He was taking half of the verse and twisting it with his little spin on it. Well, folks... There's only one truth. You've got false prophets out here in our day, just as there were in, in, in Jeremiah's day. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't let your prophets and your diviners that be in the midst of you deceive you. Neither hearken to your dreams, so-called, which you have caused to be, which you have caused to be dreamed. You've dreamed it up. I haven't sent that dream. You've dreamed it up. For they prophesy falsely unto you, and they claim that they're speaking on my behalf. Claim they're speaking in my name. Folks, Let me give you an example of how this is still going on today. Critical race theory is toxic. It's incredibly dangerous. What critical race theory does is it says there aren't individual racists scattered throughout the world, which we know there are. By the way, there are black racists just as much as there are white racists. If you are judging somebody based upon their skin color and you hate someone and want to infringe upon their rights because of their skin color, then you are a racist. supposed to be the heart and the content of character. supposed to be your behavior. Well, if there are individual racists, that's what we call living in 6,000 years of history. But if you can say that the system is racist, which is what critical race theory is, in case you don't know it, every white person is a racist. You say, oh, I'm not a racist. Half my teammate, under, under critical race theory, under that theory, every white person's racist. And if you try to deny it, then that's just further evidence that you're a racist. And it doesn't matter what evidence or facts you throw out there. Facts don't matter. Feelings are all that matter. And it's not your feelings because you're not, uh, what is it, intersectional? Is that what it is? The more minorities you can be a part of, then the more valid your opinion is. So if you happen to be a white Christian male living in America, your voice means nothing. If you are a black, transgender, LGBT, who's biologically a woman, and a Muslim, who's an atheist, boy, you've just checked off all the boxes. Boy, all of those boxes fall on you. We just draw the, and you've got great, what your opinion, your opinion counts for so much. But at the end of the day, understand, Marx wanted to destroy the economic system to replace it with his socialist utopia. So his thought was we are going to cause conflict. He thought we will cause an argument between property owners and non-property owners, the business owners and the workers. Workers of the world, unite. Rise up and throw off your oppressor. Well, that never worked well, especially in America, because we all own property. This is property. I own my own cell phone, own my own computer, own my own car, own my own house. Most of us own private property. So that never worked well. So they came up with the 
philosophy of study called critical theory. They're looking for areas of conflict. Could be LGBT versus straight. Could be um, Christian versus non-Christian. Could be male-dominated patriarchy versus women's rights. Pro-life, pro-choice. That's another, that's a perfect example. As long as there is conflict, we want to create a revolution to throw off the existing system. Well, the most effective strategy that they have come up with, especially in America, is critical theory, critical race theory. So all white people are racist and all white people are oppressors, just like all straight people are oppressors and all Americans are oppressors and all Christians are oppressors. And then all blacks have been oppressed. I don't know about you. I've never owned a slave. My parents didn't. My grandparents didn't. My great-grandparents didn't. I'm not responsible for any sin that happened 150 years ago. By the way, but yeah, Kamala Harris' grandparents. But but anyway, they want to. They want you to assume that guilt. And again, here's the problem. Here's the dilemma. If an individual is racist, well, that's always been that way. You know, hopefully we can transform the heart of that individual. But if the system is racist, we have to destroy the system. Have to throw out the system. That's why this is so dangerous. Now, there's a bill sitting on Senator or Governor Stitt's desk that will keep critical race theory out of our schools. Well, there's a whole lot of lies being said about, oh, all this is is making sure that you can share both sides of the earth. This is, that's, understand that the devil is a liar and all of his disciples are liars as well. Well, we sent out an email to get people to call down there. Got this back through our info at Reclaim America. This is a pretend, this is a false prophet, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Reverend David Wiggs of the Boston Avenue Methodist Church in Tulsa. And he said, oh, no, no, you, you might, you're jumping to conclusions. You need to read the book White Too Long by Dr. Robert P. Jones. Now, let me tell you, folks, how many of you, when, before you were born, said, you know what? I think I want to be born in Oklahoma uh, in the 1900s or early 21st century, and I want to be free and prosperous. In fact, I want to be born white, too, because there obviously there's white privilege. How many of you all made that choice before you were born? Anybody? Hey, none of us had any control over whether God planted us into His creation in 1700 in Britain or in, my case, 1963 in Edmond, Oklahoma. I have no control over when I was born or what color I was born or what family I was born into. The only thing I'm responsible for or accountable for is my actions and my behavior. That's the reality of it. This is poison. And this man is actually pastoring a so-called Christian church. I'd never heard of him. I wasn't even sure what Boston Avenue Church was. I looked up. It's a beautiful old church. And, but I did find this. There was an article on him. They went full LGBT a couple of years ago where he's now performing gay, gay weddings. Folks, either he's a man of God or Dan and I are men of God. Now, we both claim to be. Now, one group is actually speaking God's truth. One group is twisting God's truth and poisoning the minds of individuals. Now, the only way you can determine that is if you get in your Bible and you find out which one of us is telling you the truth. Boy, I can give you a whole lot of evidence that tells that I'm telling the truth. Dan's telling the truth. But this is the same conflict, do you see? 
that was going on 2,600 years ago. You got Jeremiah saying, hey, I'm a prophet of God. This thus saith the Lord. You got these other yahoos saying, oh, we're prophets of God. God didn't say that. God said this. Same battle. Same thing goes all the way back to Eden. God said, this is what I'm telling you to do. And you've got the devil showing up and say, did God really say that? Are you sure? Or is that really what he meant? All right, carrying on. Thus saith the Lord. Here's Jeremiah. Jeremiah's writing this letter that Daniel will read. And we'll come to that in a minute. We're going to have a great time in this lesson. After 70 years, by the way, what's he just said? Settle in, folks. You're going to be in captivity for a long time. Settle in. Be accomplished in Babylon. Seventy years are going to be accomplished while you're in Babylon. And then I will visit you, and I will perform a good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. By the way, it was this passage that Daniel is reading in Daniel 9 where he prays because he was so troubled, and God reveals to him what we now know as the 70th week of Daniel. We'll talk about that briefly in just a moment. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not evil, to give you an expected end. Now, folks, let me just say this in passing. We talked about this. All Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is to us. I've heard a lot of people quote Jeremiah 29, 11, and gain some strength and encouragement from it. Wonderful. This isn't written as a promise to us. This is a promise written to Israel that God is going to keep every promise He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There will be that kingdom where the seed of David rules and reigns on the throne. It's going to happen. may not look like it now because right now you're in bondage 70 years in Babylon. But don't worry. I still want to perform good towards you. <clears throat> Verse 12, because there's going to come a point in time when you will call upon me and you shall go and you will pray unto me and I will hearken unto you. And you shall seek me and find me when you search for me wholeheartedly, sincerely, not just going through the motions. Now, remember at this point in time, they've got the temple. They're going through the sacrificial system, but they are no more loving the Lord or serving the Lord or honoring the Lord. They're just going through the motions. And again, you've heard me say, God's not impressed with how pretty you look coming to church on Sunday morning. I want you to come to church on Sunday morning. We gather together, we study the Bible, we encourage each other, we grow. But you are a Christian 168 hours out of the week. You're a Christ follower every day, every hour, and everything that you do. So that's what we teach. That's why we teach a biblical worldview. So we can bring glory to the God in what to God in whatever we do as Paul commissioned. Now, verse 14, we're going to double back. We're going to have some fun. If you all like Bible prophecy, you're going to enjoy this one. I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all nations. Wait a second. Did that say Babylon? And from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and I will bring you again unto the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. In other words, I'm going to bring you back home, and I'm going to keep my promises just as I said I would. Now, the term, I will gather you from all nations, seems to infer, possibly, that it might be speaking to something larger than just from Babylon. Now, you have heard me share before, in Jewish hermeneutics, there's actually four levels of interpretation. The Peshat, the Ramez, the Drosh, and the Sod. The Peshat means the plain or literal. You can look at an application 
or even what would be called a midrash, a uh, interpretation, a prophetic interpretation. Now, from a Jewish perspective, they cannot ever disagree. But there might be a plain truth and a prophetic truth in the same verse. Let me give you a crystal clear example of what I'm talking about. If you read Hosea 11.1, it says in context, when Israel was a child, referencing the nation of Israel as the Son of God, I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. If you were to read that in Hosea, there is no doubt God is referencing as a primary reference when God delivered them out of captivity in Egypt by the hand of Moses. However, Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, as he is arguing the point that Jesus is the King of the Jews, Jesus of Nazareth fulfills the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah being the King of the Jews. Well, Matthew said this, when Joseph arose after he heard the dream, or saw the dream from the angel Gabriel, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now, folks, I wouldn't have made that connection. But the Jewish apostle named Matthew, who gave us the gospel of Matthew, made that midrashic, rabbinical midrashic application from a passage of Scripture that had a clear, plain understanding, but also had a prophetic understanding. Do you see what I'm talking about? You see that? Everybody see that? Is there any questions about this up here? I would never have gleaned that. Wow, Matthew said that. Wow, I believe him because he's writing the inspired Word of God. But when I read Hosea 11, I just saw Egypt. But Matthew said, yeah, oh, it speaks of Egypt, but it also speaks of Jesus because it says, I will call my son out of Egypt. All right. Now, we look at verse 13. You shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with your whole hearts. Now, we know very clearly that the Peshat is 70 years. We know they're going to be in captivity for 70 years. In fact, Isaiah, 100 years earlier, had prophesied that a king named Cyrus would allow them to return to, to Israel. Now, this was 100 years before they'd been taken captive. Well, that's exactly what did happen. Cyrus saw that prophecy from Isaiah because Daniel showed it to him. He was so impressed that he released the Jews. And they were so excited to return. They had been so repentant and so ready to return to God that out of over a million Jews in Babylon, less than 50,000 went back home. I wouldn't say that that's an overwhelming wholehearted repentance. I would say that, yes, God did keep His promise 70 years, and the Jews were allowed to start trickling back. However, there is something far more significant when Israel cries out to Him with their whole heart sincerely. Let me read to you Hosea 5 in the complete Jewish translation. For to the northern kingdom, Ephraim, <laughs> I, God says, I'm going to be like a lion. Well, that's not a good thing. How many of you want to meet a lion going out to your car tonight? Anybody? I didn't think so. And uh, to the house of Judah, that's the southern kingdom, uh, I will be like a young lion, and I'm going to tear them up. 
And then I'm going to go. And I'm going to carry them off. Captivity. No one will rescue. Who's going to fight with God? I will go and return to my place until they admit their guilt and search for me, seeking me eagerly in their distress, in their tribulation, actually is what it says. Chapter 6, verse 1, come, here's their prayer. Here's the prayer of Israel. By the way, I personally believe that this is why Satan is persecuting and hates the Jews so much. If the only role of Israel was to birth the Messiah, then why have they been so persecuted and so hated for the last 2,000 years? Well, I believe that Satan thinks that he can disrupt God's plan if there aren't any Jews to cry out to the Lord to return. Come, let us return to Adonai, the Lord. For He has torn, but He will heal us. He has struck, but He will also bind our wounds. After two days, I think that that is a prophetic, midrashic statement after 2,000 years. He will revive us. And in the third millennium, the age of the Messiah, He will raise us up and we will live in His presence. Let us know, let us strive to know yad Hey vav Hey. Again, the Jews are so afraid of taking the Lord's name in vain that they will never say the unpronounceable name of God. They will always substitute it either with the word Adonai, which means Lord, or Hashem, which means the name. Let us know, let us strive to know the Lord, that He will come is as that he will come just as certain as the spring rains follow the fall rains, or just as certain as the morning follows the evening, so too he's going to come. Now, notice what Jesus said after preaching that warm sermon in Matthew 23 when he was leaving the temple for the last time, and he called them all a bunch of whited sepulchers and snakes. He said, This, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto me, unto thee. How often would I, Jesus speaking as God incarnate, I would have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathered their chickens under her wings, but you refused to heed my call. Behold, your house. Now remember, Jesus came one time early in his ministry and called it his father's house. He came there the last week of his ministry as he drove everybody out and said, this is my house. Here he's leaving. He said, I'm leaving your house empty. I'm moving out. For I say unto you, get this, you Jews shall not see me henceforth. You'll not see me again until you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Paul spoke of this, Romans 11, for I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that currently there's blindness, partial blindness in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so shall Israel be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them that I shall take away their sins. I believe verse 13 and verse 12 is referencing a larger return and a certain comprehensive repentance. I think that that ties in with Joel 3, uh, Revelation 19, and Zechariah 14 at Armageddon when it looks like it's all over. And they cry out to Jesus. Jesus shows up as King of Kings. They celebrate. And then all of a sudden they say, wait a second. What happened to your hands? Where did you get the nail prints in your hands? Then all of a sudden they're going to understand exactly 
what they did 2,000 years ago when they rejected their Messiah. Verse 14, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away, okay, when I gather you out from all nations. All right, this is going to be fun. I love this stuff. Now remember the Peshat and the Drash. There's a direct primary application, and there's also a prophetic application. Now, Jeremiah said they were going to be in bondage for 70 years, right? Okay? And we know that they were. But we also know that Daniel was a little troubled. Daniel in Daniel chapter 2 had been given uh, the uh, privilege of interpreting a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the first tyrant. He was the first man that ruled over Israel after the house of David had been established. He represented, he had this dream, and he challenged his father's holdover administrative staff, which were his magi, his wise men. He said, guys, I need you to interpret my dream. He said, we'll be glad to do that. Hey, they worked carnivals before. They knew how to interpret, read palms, and do all that stuff. And Nebuchadnezzar said, uh-uh. First of all, you tell me what my dream was. If you can tell me what my dream was, then I'll know you can interpret it for me. Well, they were all stumped. Nebuchadnezzar, as he usually does, made a reference. Okay, I've had it. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to turn your house into a dunghill. <laughs> uh, what a warm, fuzzy guy. Well, they knocked on Daniel's door, and Daniel said, wait a second. Let us have a crack at this. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into a prayer meeting. God revealed to them the prayer or the dream, what it was, and also the interpretation was. It was this golden image, head of gold, arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of iron, feet of iron mixed with clay, and ten toes. And it's also interpreted for us. We know that the head is Babylon. That's interpreted directly from Scripture. We know that the chest and arms was the following kingdom of Medo-Persia. We know that that was followed by Greece. We know that that was followed by the legs of iron being Rome. And we know that this last kingdom that will be around when Jesus returns and establishes His kingdom is this group of ten kings, loosely confederated, part of iron, part of clay, not sticking together. And of course, we know as we continue to study that it's that last attempt at global socialism when the Antichrist comes to power. So we know that that's there. Daniel knew that that was there. He believed it, okay? All of these kingdoms are going to come into place. And then, as he's concluding, Israel's going to be back in the land. So that's got to be 70 years, because that's what Jeremiah said. But in Daniel 9, they are now about 68 years into the 70 years. And Daniel's going, wait a second. I know, Lord, you've told me that there's going to be five kingdoms, and we're going to be reestablished. But... And I know it's going to be 70 years because you said that to Jeremiah. But we're now 68 years into the process and we've barely gotten past Babylon. We're barely into the Medo-Persian Empire. Lord, what's going on? The first half of chapter 9, he pours out his heart in repentance, interceding on behalf of his people. Verse 24, God sends a messenger to give him an answer. He said, 70 Shavuam, 70 sevens are determined upon your people, Daniel, and your holy city, which obviously is Jerusalem. In order to finish the transgression, in other words, it's not just 70 years, it's 70 times 7. By the way, we understand why also in Leviticus, God said, if you don't submit to my punishment, I will multiply it times 7, which He did, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, 
to bring to an end, to a conclusion, all the visions and prophecies, and to anoint the Messiah, the Most Holy One, in the Most Holy Place. Goes on to tell the timeline. Know therefore, Daniel, and I want you to understand this, that from the time the command is given to go and restore the city of Jerusalem. Now, there are different restorations. There was Zerubbabel, who went back after 70 years. He didn't rebuild the city. All he began was the rebuilding of the temple. There was Ezra, the priest, who led a great revival among the priesthood. But then there was Nehemiah that returned in 454 and was given permission by Artaxerxes to rebuild the walls of the city and the streets thereof. That obviously is what is being referenced here. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the Prince, shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And remember, this is sevens. We say the word dozen. What does a dozen mean? Twelve. We normally think of eggs or donuts. I think of donuts. But a dozen means twelve. Well, this was translated weeks, but actually it means seven. Seventy-sevens. So 490. Well, after 483 years... Well, why is it broken down like this? Well, first of all, there would have been uh, seven times seven, 49 years from the time that Nehemiah was given the commandment to rebuild the temple or rebuild the city in 454. You go 49 years, that was the close of the Old Testament canon of Scripture. Malachi penned his dot, dot, dot to be continued in 395. 62 more weeks until Messiah the Prince. If you did the math, with the Jewish year, you have 173,880 days. Exactly 173,880 days from the command given to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, this happened. The king fulfilled Zechariah 9.9. He came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. But they didn't recognize him. By the way... The Scripture says that the Messiah would be karat, cut off, sacrificed. But not for Himself. He didn't need the sacrifice, and He didn't do anything wrong. And then we see a void there that we don't see in the Scripture. Actually, a period of 37 or 38 years from the Messiah being cut off until the city was destroyed and the temple in 70 A.D. And then we see a continuation, ultimately, God's wrath would be poured out upon this desolator. But until the end, there would be continual war and desolations determined upon Jerusalem. Boy, that's not a very happy ending. But we know after 400, uh, that, that exact period of time, we see how just Jesus came riding into Jerusalem. We know that He was, in fact, sacrificed. By the way, this is why Jesus said He was upset when He made this entry into Jerusalem. He wept. He said, as he came near the city, riding over the top of the Mount of Olives, Oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only recognize what was going on. Peace was here. Your king is here. But now it seems to be hidden from your eyes. Here's what's going to happen. The days are going to come, and thine enemies shall surround you. So you're going to surround the city. And they shall level the city. And thy children within thee, and there shall not be on thee one stone left upon another. 
You all that have been to Jerusalem know that around the temple complex, they still have those giant boulders, those giant blocks of granite that are still scattered and laid down around the base of the temple complex from when this actually happened. Why? Because you didn't recognize that it was time for me to show up. Again, 173,880 days to the day is when Jesus made his triumphal entry. How could they have missed that? But they did. And Jesus went on and said, there shall be great distress in the land, Haaretz, Israel, and wrath upon this people. What people is this? The Jews. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into, wait a second, what did Jeremiah say? God was going to retrieve them out of what? Babylon? No. He said all nations, didn't he? They should be driven out of Jerusalem into all nations. And Jerusalem will be under the rule of Gentiles until this time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Again, we see the city and the sanctuary destroyed. At that point in time, God's clock paused. What we see in there with the ending of that temple and what we'll see coinciding will be the establishment of this peace treaty in Israel that's talked about here in the same passage. By the way, at that same time, they will be given permission to rebuild the temple. Notice the point. The clock stopped when the temple was torn down. They rejected the king in Zechariah 9.9. The temple was torn down. God's clock stopped with Israel. There is this age of the church hidden in the Old Testament that we are now living in. The clock's going to stop again when they start rebuilding the temple. It's going to be the countdown to Zechariah 14 when the Messiah shows up the next time. So again, we've got this 69 weeks of years. We've got seven years that still remain. We know that the Scripture tells us that this seven-year period, there will be one that will confirm the covenant for one week. That's the 70th week. That's this last week of judgment. And in the midst of the week, He shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease. That is the thanksgiving offering and the sin offerings. Uh, the, uh, and then uh, the overbedding of abomination. Abomination is idol worship. He's going to demand, if you remember from Revelation, He's going to build an image of Himself and demand that they worship Him. And it's going to be pretty bad. I'm glad we're not going to be here. But understand, this is a timeline. You've got Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Rome. You've got the king's first appearance. Then you've got ten kings and the king's second appearance. Why don't we see anything in between? Because the church age is hidden in the Old Testament. The Jews had no idea. There was no justification for the Jews to say, oh, we had to reject the Messiah, otherwise the church couldn't have come about. There was not any redeeming quality to rejecting the Messiah other than just clear disobedience. Now, back in Jeremiah, because you have said, the Lord hath raised us up prophets about, hey, we've got preachers too. Know this, saith the Lord, concerning Zedekiah and concerning all you Jews still in Judah and Jerusalem. Behold, I will send upon you a sword and famine and pestilence, and I will make them like vile figs. Remember Jeremiah 24. We saw the two baskets of figs, the one good, the one bad. The ones bad were the ones actually left in Jerusalem, which would have been contrary to popular thought. And I will persecute them with the sword and the famine and pestilence. Those same things were laid out in Leviticus, if you remember. And I will deliver them to be removed unto all the kingdoms of the earth to be accursed, an astonishment, a hissing, a reproach among all nations, whither I have driven them. Because they have not hearkened to my word, saith the Lord, which I sent unto them, my servants, the prophets, 
By the way, this is a Jewish way of saying, I've been at it relentlessly, getting up early and going to bed late, sending them, working all day, but you would not hear, saith the Lord. Hear therefore the word from the Lord, all ye in captivity, whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Oh, this is good. We're, we're going to wrap this up real quickly. But this is great. Thus saith Jehovah Sabbath, God of Israel, concerning this false prophet Ahab, the son of Kaliah, and this false prophet Zedekiah, the son of Messiah, which prophesy a lie unto you, and they claim to be speaking for me. Behold, I will deliver those two yahoos into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he is going to kill them right there in front of you. And of them, of those two, there is going to be a proverb, in fact, a curse taken by all the captivity of Judah, which are in Babylon. And you're going to wish bad things upon each other, and you're going to use them as an example. The Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Nebuchadnezzar kind of had a thing about that roasting in the fire, didn't he? What happened with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They got thrown in, exactly, but there wound up being a fourth guy in there with them, one that looked like under the Son of God. Guess what? Ahab and Zedekiah got tossed in the furnace too. Exactly. They got burned up. And it was going to be so well known, it was going to be like a curse. So example, if you're driving your chariot down the streets in, in uh, Tel Aviv and southern Babylon, and another Jew cuts you off in traffic, and you'd shake your fist at him, and you'd say, may it be unto you like, unto, like it was unto Ahab and Zedekiah. And he'd turn around and respond to you, and the same to you and your mother. Basically, this would be a taunt and a curse that was well known for that point. Their destruction would be famous. In other words, these false prophets God was going to deal with because they have committed... Oh, these guys claim to be men of God. Look at their villainy. They've committed adultery with their neighbor's wives. By the way, you'll notice that sexual sin is key to God's wrath. If you look in... Uh, what is it? Leviticus? No, I think it's Leviticus. Uh, I'm having a brain cramp right now. But God, yeah, I think uh, yeah, it was Leviticus. God gave them warning as to why He judged the Amorites. He said, here's what the Amorites did. First of all, they were guilty of adultery. Then they started murdering their preborn chil or their children in the fire of Moloch. Then they got involved in homosexuality. Then they got involved in bestiality. And for those reasons, I destroyed them. Don't be guilty of the same thing. Notice the sexual sin. Notice the path that we're trotting down here in America. But these so-called pastors had committed adultery with the neighbor's wives. They'd spoken lying words, claimed to be speaking for me when I hadn't sinned them. And by the way, I love this. Even I know I am witness. You notice what I put down there below that. When you don't think anyone is watching or keeping score, remember God is watching and keeping score. I said this in a letter that was shared by iVoter Guide to pastors across the country. I said, you know what? We may not like... There may, the, the people that are committing these crimes in our country may never give an account in this lifetime, but they will. There will be a day when they give an account at the great white throne judgment and their lost souls are standing before God Almighty and they'll answer for every one of these treacheries that they are guilty of. Last few verses, oh, thus shall you speak to Shemaniah, the Nelamite, saying, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. We're almost done here. This will be very quick. 
uh, Shemaiah was a priest who had been carried away to Babylon. He got word of Jeremiah's letter. And he sent word back to the priest that was in charge in Jerusalem. And he said this, Why haven't you arrested Jeremiah? Why are you letting this guy get away with it? Well, Jeremiah, this, this, the uh, high priest there in Jerusalem, read the letter to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah immediately heard a word from the Lord. Boy, it's nice when the Lord responds that quickly. And he said this, You write a letter and send it back to Shemaiah. Here's what God has said. Your family's done. All the promises that have been made to the future of Israel, your family will have no part of it. And for a Jew, being married, having children, having your children, having children, just like with us as parents and grandparents, we take pride in family. We love family. So this is very significant. God is saying, you're finished. Your name is finished. I'm blotting you out of the household of Israel. So again, the point being this. Don't speak for God if you're not speaking for God. And rest assured that one day we will all give an account for our actions. Now, the nice thing about Christians is our sins have already been paid for. So we will be at an awards ceremony based upon our faithfulness of service as Christians. And we will immediately take whatever crowns given to us and give them right back to Jesus, saying, we don't deserve these. All glory goes to you. There will be a great white throne of judgment, which happens about a thousand seven years after that. The Bible says that I saw the dead small and great stand before God. I saw hell emptied. And I saw basically the body and soul reunited, stand before God, and everyone will be judged according to their works. We don't want to be judged according to our works. And then they will all be declared guilty and cast into the lake of fire. Where, by the way, the Scripture says where the beast and the false prophet are. So the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to have a thousand-year head start on everybody else. But understand, we'll all give an account. We give an account for every idle word and thought. Again, our sins are paid for. We will be rewarded the Bema seat, uh, the uh, reward stand, the judgment stand. We will be rewarded for our faithfulness as our sin debt has already been paid for by Jesus. But a lost man will stand there clothed in his own robes of unrighteousness. And he will give an account for every idle word and every action. So rest assured that your sins will, in fact, find you out. If not in this lifetime, at, at a court, at a human court, at that court. All right, next week we'll pick up in chapter 30 and 31. We get into some fun stuff. We will find out very quickly well, where the term New Testament came from. You'll be happy to know that the term New Testament actually originated in the Old Testament. Because the Bible is one book by one author, and it all fits together. It's progressive revelation through some 4,000 years by, what, 40 different authors on three different continents at least. So uh, anyway, we'll, we'll have fun when we get there.